So, in the studio with me uh, this afternoon, I have the legend that is Liz Crow. Uh, welcome to the studio. Why, thank you, Paul. And you've travelled all the way out from Bristol, haven't you? All the way from Bristol, Which quite you... a circuitous route. And is Bristol your hometown, or are you from somewhere else? I'm from Cheshire originally. From Cheshire? I am. Much closer. Whereabouts in Cheshire? Um, near a little village called Bunbury. Which is near a bigger place called... Ooh, Tarpley, about Tarpley. 12 miles from Chester. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Why did you leave the glorious sights of Chester and the surrounding area for hideous Bristol? Uh, oh, well, went via the States and then moved a long time ago. Moved when I was 17 because of my dad's job. And do you like Bristol? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I sensed a big no there, really. I think it's hideous. There's lots it's in favour of hilly, Bristol. Hilly, cobbly. The hills are bad. Parking's I, atrocious. Yeah. Apparently it's, it's the highest car ownership in the country and pollution <sighs> is terrible. But there is quite a vibrant art sector and media sector, I'm told. Is there? Um, You're told. One day so I'd like to be a part of it. <laughs> 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 the moment I'm knocking on doors and sitting uh, at the bottom of flights of steps. I think you never it know. probably doesn't really exist. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my guess. There's probably lots of people paid to be administrators in it, but nobody actually doing anything. I'm saying nothing. Some of <laughs> them might have money and I want it. <laughs> and so uh, how should I describe you? You're an artist, filmmaker, uh, disability specialist, what? Ooh, um, I suppose, well, it depends on the grant application. Sometimes I'm an artist, sometimes I'm a filmmaker. Apparently mm -hmm. you can't be both. Um, so... I'm that, and I'm a long-time disability activist, and they're all kind of bound up in my work. So my work is very activist-based. And you used to be uh, one of the Dan activists. You're still a Dan I activist? Um, I'm not really. I'm on the fringes of that at the moment, um, partly because the creative work takes up most of the time, and I'm trying to use that as a tool for change. That might change in the future. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know, but at the moment it's very much the arts work. So we'll come on later to whether it can art change things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to which, of course, the answer is no. <laughs> Jury's out. But we can, we can pretend it does. <laughs> that's what And if someone's going to pay us to have a go, that's all, all well and good. And, and so you're disabled yourself. I am. Excellent. I don't want any normal people in the studio with me. Are you going to give me a load of medical questions? Oh, would you like a load of medical oh, questions? That, well, it would be much more fun coming from you than anybody I, medical. I love medical <laughs> questions. I always say, what's wrong with you? People say, I can't say that. Yes, I can. <laughs> no one's listening. <laughs> uh, so, no, I won't ask any medical questions. Unless you really like medical. Really not. No, no, I didn't think you were. Been there. Uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of you activist types don't like medical questions. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is why I like asking them. I always say to Liz Carr, what's wrong with you? But she never tells me. The problem with Liz Carr is that she and I are mistaken for each other I a know. lot of the time. I get your names mixed up all the time. Yeah. Do you know And what? I know you both. I got an email for Liz Carr just the other week. But the thing is, one time... Was it offering work that was paid? Actually, it wasn't. Accept it. Accept it, it, it if it... But what I do have to say is that one time she did a whole year's work for Manchester Coalition for Disabled People. And I got a letter of thanks. Wow, that's right. As long as she gets the money and you get the thanks, that's what counts, isn't it? <laughs> it would be much better the other way if you got yeah, the money quite. and she got the thanks. 
I like that. I, I, I just wish there was a, a, a disability whatever called Paul Drake and then I could be cleaning up big time because that's what everybody calls me. And and so how long have you been a filmmaker? Let's concentrate on the films first. Um, just over ten years. And you've made a number of films. Tell us about your first film. Oh, the first one was The Real Helen Keller, which mm-hmm. I co-produced and co-directed with Anne Pugh. Um, and we made that for Channel 4. So it was kind of from no experience to really um, quite heavy-duty experience. Um, so it was a gruelling nine months working on that. And was that a happy experience? It was a mixed experience. A mixed we experience. We met some interesting censorship along the way. Mm. Um, it Tell com- us about the censorship. Oh, the censorship was things along the line of could we use the word discrimination in relation to Helen Keller, mm. um, who clearly experienced a great deal of discrimination through her life. Mm. Um, and we had um, blazing rows, really, with commissioning editors over that one, um, in which it was threatened to pull the programme from the air if we persisted in using such language. Language, that we could use that in relation to things like racism, but right. not in relation to Helen Keller. But things have changed so dramatically now, haven't they? Oh, so dramatically. <laughs> um, that might be why I don't do any television work these days. <laughs> well, you think the thing you've got to think about is, is if you're making crap, television's the place to be. And, and if you're not making crap, it's got any brains on it, it'll never get on television, So, uh, especially with Channel 4. Uh, but enough about Channel 4. And so, um, and that, was, uh, that took a long time, and, and you went to America for that? We did. I mean, what happened originally was I'd wanted to work in film and television for quite a long time and had met lots of closed doors and had just kind of given it up and gone in a different direction. And then I read a book about Helen Keller, who I thought I'd learned about at school as that poor little deaf-blind kid who learned to speak at the water well, etc., etc. But this um, book was about women anti-militarists, and suddenly there was this Helen Keller who was a writer and a poet and a speaker and um, sufficiently political that the FBI were had her under surveillance. And it took me a while to realise it was the same Helen Keller. And when I did, I wanted people to know about it. So I attempted to pass it on to Anne Pugh, this filmmaker, who said we should work on it together. So that's how I came to make the programme. And after quite a while, we managed to get this commission from Channel 4. So why, why, did, why do people not know about the kind of political revolutionary attitudes of Helen Keller? Because the story about the triumph over tragedy is just so much more cosy. Um, One of the things we found was that it really fitted with that kind of all-American dream child, um, the triumph over tragedy, the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and so on. Um, And actually, she was um, active during the McCarthy era. There's an FBI file on her. It doesn't fit with the... um, saccharine image of the American Foundation for the Blind, which used her as a figurehead for many, many years. Um, They didn't want somebody who was highly political and controversial. Um, So that side of her life was really pretty much wiped from the record. In fact, when we looked at archive images, we found hundreds of images of Helen Keller as a kind of PR model. And we found one image where she was sitting in the back of a car going somewhere looking so stressed. And it was the only one where she actually revealed this other side of herself, which was that she was under enormous pressure throughout her life with other people making decisions for her and Mm. manipulating her. Mm. 
And then so after the Helen Keller thing, which was very successful, got good audiences? It's had very appreciative audiences at deaf and disability film festivals. Um, Channel 4 didn't like it, and it went out um, on a Saturday lunchtime slot um, the Saturday before Christmas. Well, I'd say that's a badge of honour if Channel 4 didn't like it, so... uh... (laughs) (laughs) But, well, you know, we're always looking for more audiences because... It's a good program. An audience program. would be nice. An audience would be really nice. And it's a good program, and um, it would be lovely to get it out to more people, so get in mm. touch if you have an audience. Uh, demand it be shown again on Channel 4. Yes. At 12 o'clock on a Saturday before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the only time they're ever going to show it. I yes. think yourself lucky, at least it wasn't 8.30 in the morning. This is true. Because their last big uh, disability director thing, wasn't it, that was supposed to be peak viewing, ended up at 8.30 on a Saturday morning. Yeah, but that was... <sighs> Rubbish. <laughs> Do you know what? I never saw it in the end, um, so I couldn't well, possibly we comment. But the whole, the whole idea of it was, you know, filmmakers really struggle to get the money to get their projects off the ground. Generally, they struggle, and disabled filmmakers probably generally struggle quite a bit more because of discrimination. So suddenly, they put some money towards filmmakers to enable them to get their projects off the ground, and it sounds fantastic, but for disabled people to do that, we have to be turned into a freak show. We can't just make the films and have those Or you constantly have to be a newcomer. You have to be a newcomer and go on a freak show. I always think to myself, if you're still running these schemes after having been in existence 20 years, you've failed. Yeah. (laughs) I think Channel 4 think I'm old and bitter now because I thought that series was a really bad idea. And are you old and bitter? Yeah, (laughs) but not necessarily in the way that they would think. (laughs) So in what way are you old and bitter? You've opened a whole can of worms. Oh, like you say, if it isn't fixed in 20 years, something's really, really wrong. Actually, where I'm... One of the many, many ways I'm old and bitter is that um, I really resent the way the media... Um, has got hooked on this idea of mainstreaming us. I think it's absolutely right that disabled people should be present in things like cookery programmes and travel programmes and, and, and all that kind of mainstream programming. But um, it's where, once upon a time, we had programmes that were only ever about disability. Now the pendulum swung the other way. We can only ever be in mainstream. And actually, where's our culture in all of that? I want to see my life represented on the screen um, and it still isn't. Mm. And, and I think that that's a fair enough criticism in relation to race, gender, sexuality as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that, that yep. drive towards uh, mainstreaming is just creating a banal kind of homogenous blob that's pointless yep. and drivel. Oh, so we're both old and bitter. <laughs> <laughs> we're really cheering up it's our listeners today, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then what was the film after that? Was that the Frida Kahlo one after that? It was, Frida Kahlo's Corset. And why are you, are you, are you still interested in Frida Kahlo? Um, I read a very, very fat biography about Frida Kahlo and there was one paragraph in it about the plaster um, corsets that she had to wear for her impairment Mm -hmm. and it described these corsets in a kind of tone of tragedy about how this you know this poor vibrant woman had had to wear these really confining corsets and she'd kind of painted them to make herself feel better about them and my reading of it was completely different in that um the corsets did go against the very kind of vibrant image that she projected but as a painter that's completely who she was so it was just instinctive 
that she would apply paint to these corsets and make them an extension of herself and use them as part of exploring her self-image. And so I read that paragraph about 12 years before I made the film and I tried writing about it and tried doing just different things with it and it never worked and it was only once I'd started making films that I'd realised I'd been looking for the right medium for it mm -hmm. and the film evolved from that. And it was a very, it was almost an installation piece, wasn't it? It's quite a poetry-based film. Poetic stillness. Yes. Uh, describe it to us. <laughs> Ooh, uh, surely you right. watch it every day when you wake up. Oh, every day. Oh, I'm every glad day. to hear it. I'm well, people are obviously it. just going to have to watch it and then they can work <laughs> it out for themselves because obviously if I'm, like, translating it, they won't get the idea. Um, <laughs> it's... Um, it's a very simply staged film. It was shot in a studio with very simple backdrops. Um, there are only two actors in it, Frida Kahlo, um, who's played by Isolde Vila, um, and the medic. And it's quite um, slow, meditative um, pace. The dialogue is done as a voiceover, and it's very poetry-based um, and is drawn from Frida Kahlo's diaries and letters. Um, and the images in the film are drawn from her paintings. Why do you like Frida Kahlo? Do I like Frida Kahlo? It's funny, everybody thinks I'm kind of her biggest fan because I made mm -hmm. that film, and I don't know that I am. Mm -hmm. um, I am intrigued by her paintings and by her biography. I was very drawn to this idea of incorporating her impairment and the corsets into her identity and in presenting something that just hadn't really been presented before. I kind of left Frida Kahlo behind and moved on to other subjects now. It, it was interesting when um, the film screened at Tate Modern when there was a whole retrospective of Frida Kahlo's paintings and I sat in the room where all the paintings were and um, she specialised in self-portraits and I kind of rotated on the spot and was overwhelmed by face upon face upon face. And I can't decide whether the, these are incredibly powerful portraits or whether they are somewhat self-indulgent, or maybe both. Do you make much about yourself? Um, at one level, I suppose it's all about me. <laughs> me, me, me. On what level is that? <laughs> um, in the sense of um, the themes that have come out of my work, which are about um, identity and resistance and survival. And I think, like many, many disabled people, and particularly politicised disabled people, that is what our lives have been about. That if you find yourself on the outside um, and you're going to survive that, then you have to work very hard to find an identity for yourself and a route through your life for yourself. There's been various kind of mainstream routes I've tried to take, you know, like school, going to college, those sorts of things, and a lot of those routes have been closed or partially closed to me. Um, and so I've had to invent my own life and course through life and the disadvantage of that is that it's incredibly hard work the advantage is that the rules that a lot of people in the mainstream follow are not so relevant to me anymore so I get to make up my own rules but in that sense all my work relates mm. to my own experience my journey but none of it's directly about you or directly autobiographical at all um, one radio piece one radio piece and what was that called 
Um, it was part of the Radio 4 Dear Diaries, Dear Diary series, mm-hmm. um, and mine was called Bristol to Tijuana in Mexico. Mm. The Tijuana bit sounds good. I don't know about the Bristol bit. <laughs> 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 and so... Um, you're you're an activist coming back to the work and your your kind of political philosophy uh, why are you an activist why why are you a disabled activist um I'm given not... that most of us sit around on our bottoms doing nothing why are you not doing that i'm not sure i know how to do it any other way um there's so much needs changing mm mm-hmm. I mean, from the level of whether you can get into that building through to people being incarcerated in institutions and having a shorter lifespan because of it. I mean, I don't know how to sit back and watch that. Mm. I don't know whether I'm effective in change. I don't know how you measure that, Mm -hmm. because it's very rare that one action leads to an immediate result. It's more often lots of people doing lots of things over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to know whether I can be effective for what I do but actually I suppose at one level the critical thing for myself is that I'm doing something and so have you done a lot of disability quality training in the past in yeah the past. I probably did and how did you find that years of it actually um very mixed um where I did training with a group of people who'd been sent on that training by management um it I found it was generally less effective and sometimes participants were really resentful then again, sometimes those would be really challenging trainings and if I won people over, they could actually be much more... Um, they could see much more change and be much more motivated to, wear, to go away and do things. There were definitely times when real change came out of equality training. Um, do you think it can change disabled people's lives? Yes, I do. And you think it can change non-disabled people's lives? I think a lot of the activist work we do, in which I'm going to include training through to direct action on the streets, through to filmmaking and so on, um, a lot of it is about changing our lives, seeing different images of ourselves different ways of living our lives and giving ourselves the strength and the solidarity to go back and make decisions about our own lives. Um, And that's one of the biggest strengths of all. Mm -hmm. Maybe the most obvious. um, And often when we talk about kind of activism, you know, we predominantly mean working in a kind of different model of the definitions of disability. And so are you a believer in the social model of disability? I am a believer in the social model of disability. Are you a hardcore believer in the social model? <laughs> or are you uh, 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 what do they call? What do they call those people? Not recidivists, rewriters or bringing a different spin onto it. <laughs> I I'm, oh, I'm going to say both, um, in that um, I think the social model probably saved my life at one point and maybe has done plenty of times. Um, because my impairment started when I was 10 and my later school days were very tough. I didn't see any other disabled people. I wasn't necessarily recognised as a disabled person, but nor was I recognised as a non-disabled person. Um, And it was just a very gruelling, demoralising time. 
And when I went on a one-hour equality session um, with Student Community Action, um, my life transformed within that one hour because the moment I heard a disabled person speaking about how our experiences are about our place in the world and the structures that don't admit us, I recognised everything that had happened to me for the past nine or ten years. So it was, my life was changed in an instant. And do you remember who that person was? Francis Blackwell. Right. It's always good to name-check people who've saved your lives. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you've told her this since. Yes, I have, actually. That's... But I'm out of touch with her now, and I would like to get back in touch with her. <laughs> so she's listening. Yeah. That will double me audience. <laughs> uh, no, I've got many thousands of listeners. Many thousands of listeners. Uh, and so, but you are well known, are you not, mm-hmm. for uh, starting a kind of trend along with someone such as Tom Shakespeare mm-hmm. for trying to bring back impairment into the social model? How would you define that? Correct me. Yeah, I am. Um, I don't know that what I said necessarily goes with everything else that's been said since. Um, My experience is that I have um, an impairment that involves a lot of illness. And what I came to realise over the years is that to separate impairment, the body, and um, disability, which is discrimination, socially caused, Mm -hmm. um, to separate those completely didn't any longer make complete sense to my life. Mm. And this came about particularly because I had a period of four years being in bed where I was really removed from the social world and suddenly I was experiencing relatively little discrimination because I wasn't coming into contact with that social world. Mm -hmm. And yet my experiences um, of my body um, were still having a major impact on my life. And when I started to come out into that social world, those experiences worked together and meant that my concept of the world that I lived in, my experience of discrimination, was not the same as people who had impairments that didn't experience, didn't include things like illness or pain. Mm -hmm. And that actually what we needed to do was move into a place where our primary focus for activism was old-fashioned social model about changing social structures but that when we organized amongst ourselves we actually had to acknowledge that impairment was relevant because if we um, didn't look at the interaction between Mm. impairment and discrimination then what we actually ended up doing was excluding our own people. So would it be fair to say that you actually did separate impairment and, and disability uh, but that you just, but then that you spoke about them differently, or did you want to bring impairment within to the social model? I don't know. I want to bring it into the social model. What I want the social model to do is acknowledge that it is relevant and that it interacts with the struggle to change social mm-hmm. structures. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't give it equal weighting, if you like, within that social model. But I don't think you can ignore it. Mm-hmm. And because it, it caused quite a lot of contra- controversy, that kind of view, didn't it? So I'm told. I did, mean, you know, I, hell, I was in you? bed, so I wasn't really in touch with any of this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did it surprise that's me? That's my no. argument. I'm always in bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, did it surprise me? No. Um, finding a place 
to publish that article was really difficult because what I really wanted was disabled people to read it and discuss it and think about it. Um, but as soon as it was put out into any public space, it meant that other people could also read it. And um, I think as a movement, and probably even more so at that time, um, we felt we needed to be quite protective of any debate about the social model mm -hmm. in a public situation. So um, in, fact, in the piece that I wrote, right at the end, I looked at what... I looked at how what I'd said related to our work as disability activists, mm -hmm. and one of the areas I looked at was disability equality training, mm. and that I felt it was appropriate to continue disability equality training, emphasising social structures and keeping impairment at the sideline because we were introducing people to something that was a big mental leap, mm. and it was really important that they were looking specifically at the social structures, which was what they had the power to change. Were you surprised others took up the, uh, the, uh, the battle and ran with it as much as they have, such as Tom Shakespeare, that has brought him a kind of semi-excommunication from the movement? <laughs> Take are you going to keep this long silence in no, the show no. or are you going to edit it uh, out? I'll keep it um, in. This is tension. Ask me that question again. Were you surprised that others took up the baton of that kind of the notion of, of bringing impairment to be, have some significance within a kind of exploration of the social model to the degree that, say, perhaps Tom Shakespeare has, which has caused an awful lot of a backlash, mm. both, a, a, you know, a, a wave of support for that view as well as a wave of, of kind of an anti against that? I think the responses have been really interesting. I know some people were very angry at what I wrote. Some people responded um, publicly to what I wrote. Although, actually, if you analyse what they wrote, sometimes they didn't read what I'd written. They read what they thought I'd written. Um, and, and presumed I'd trashed the social model, which, wasn't, which I'm not interested in doing, because I think it's a, an incredibly significant piece of work. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of people come to me over the years and actually say thank you because it was the first time they'd felt their experiences had been recognised. Mm -hmm. And actually, I do think that's really important because if you fall outside the mainstream, you go to um, this politi political disability community and if suddenly you have a possibility of home and then within that community you experience things. Somebody once said to me, "Is oh, you, we don't talk about anything negative here. Mm. Well, actually, you, you know, you're denying people's experiences just as much as the mainstream is, and that mm. doesn't do anybody any favours. Mm. And, and even from a very pragmatic position, if you want people to get out there and be activists and be promoting change, then you need to support them. Because actually, if your lack of support means they're falling by the wayside and being ill and getting ill and being in pain and stuff, then they're going to be really ineffective activists. Mm. So it's in our interests to acknowledge that stuff. But what about the criticism that uh, those who oppress us, given the opportunity, will always hook into the notion of impairment over and above the social model? So, for example, social work training... Uh, will always pick the books uh, on the classes that reinforce the idea of the tr of the impairment issue over and above the social model issues. Um, they will, and that's why we better have our arguments really clearly thought through. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, what I think I discovered through things like equality training is that if you completely 
deny any influence of impairment. Mm. A lot of people on those courses just don't believe you. If you acknowledge that there are elements of impairment that influence and maybe even restrict people's lives, even if you say that the, the massive balance is actually about changing social structures, they are more likely to buy into the social model and use that to change their behaviours than if you pretend impairment has nothing to do with anything. So, so this may sound like a strange question, and I do ask it of most of my guests. Mm. Uh, why should we live in an equal society for disabled people? <laughs> why, should why? We, why shouldn't we? Uh, because it's expensive. Uh, we don't want them. We're going to do our utmost to get rid of them. Uh, they, they're a burden. There's lots of arguments like that. And why bother? We tend not to do it for other groups, particularly. Uh, and even if we do it, they're easier. So why bother with the disabled? Obviously, I believe one should, but what would you say? Because I don't know any other way. Mm. Um, because um, we're alive. Mm. For me, that's about as basic as it gets, that either you believe in life and the value of life, or you don't. If you believe in it, then you make sure that world is opened up to people and that you share. And it all just sounds terribly naive and innocent and stuff, but there you go. <laughs> ah, there's nothing wrong with naivety and innocence. Uh, I, I, should, I would recommend it to more people. No, but it's interesting because often we talk about that and, and often people think, well, why? Mm. Why, why, give the, why have equality for disabled people? I don't know how... <laughs> how... how, how how does somebody kind of cope if they have all the stuff to themselves and they watch other people who haven't got much? I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I'm but the world copes quite well doing that. The world does cope well. <laughs> For those that have it. Yeah. The West over the South, the North over the South, the, the rich over the poor, the able over the disabled, the black over the white. The world copes quite well. The white over the black, rather, copes quite well dealing with that as a social order it does cope well <laughs> it doesn't make it it doesn't make it right absolutely absolutely but it's it's an interesting just to have that kind of basic thought why you know because to me it's an essential and obvious but uh, i don't think it is to most people and it isn't to the world that's for sure no it's interesting because i mean i i'm not going to do this on blooming radio but um, <laughs> i want to go away and think about that a lot more because actually if I'm saying we as a movement need to grapple with the full complexity of our lives and not only look at social structures, then actually we probably need to have a very, very good idea of what the answer is to your question. <laughs> because the truth is that a lot of people who have power don't willingly give it up. Um, the well, question... they don't ever, I would argue. They don't ever give it up. They will bargain to maintain as much as they can for a loss of a little but they never ever give it up who are you talking about on what scale anybody on any scale it's all a question of degrees it's never about giving anything up I'm not sure I'm quite <laughs> cynical yet. <laughs> well I'm older and bitterer it's as simple as that <laughs> and, and so why why art then 
So why the move away from activism and the move towards artistic expression and creativity? You thought this was going to be easy, didn't you? You're not letting me stop. I want a drink of water. Have a drink of water. I need a drink of water. That's fine. (laughs) Um, I think the whole art thing was always there, and then I kind of turned my back on it for a while and then did the Helen Keller programme and realised I loved the whole thing of communicating and working with images and telling stories and that it had really been missing from my life. Mm. Um, I had actually went into... I've got a seven-year-old and I went into school the other week and um, directed a play in an hour and a half um, because they'd just been learning about the Tudors and um, I remembered that when I was ten I'd also learned about the Tudors and about Lady Jane Grey and I'd gone home and written my first ever play (laughs) which we'd then performed at school and I kind of dug it out 30-something years later um, and kind of realised now that I should have gone to drama school. <laughs> <laughs> so will you, does this mean you're going to start acting in your films in the future? God, no. <sighs> I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed. Only in the privacy of my own home, nobody watching. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a sense then that activism is uh, gone? No. The kind of Disability Action Network kind of thing is passe or ineffective. It's, you still believe in that, but you... I believe you in it. I think... There's lots of questions we need to be asking about um, what are the most effective tactics, given that the world doesn't stay still and the political climate has changed. And I think when we were doing bus blockades and the issue we were concentrating on was transport and Thatcher was in power and gave us something really hard to hit against, um, then what we were doing in handcuffing ourselves to buses and so on was really incredibly effective and powerful. Um, then Labour got in and however not socialist they are it's it, instead of hitting against this kind of, well, the Iron Lady we got this kind of blamange and without that kind of resistance it's really hard to be that effective opposition plus the Disability Discrimination Act came in and however inadequate that is um, a lot of people out there think we've got what we were campaigning for and therefore are very much intolerant of the overt campaigning. So I think it's really important that Dan continues. I think um, as a movement, we need to examine what is the most effective way forward, given the political climate. We have to pitch what we do. Because I find it very interesting that uh, when I meet young people, and obviously being an old man, I don't meet many young people. Uh, If I did, I'd probably be arrested. But uh, the... You just said that many people believe we got what we wanted and that we do have equality. In what ways don't we have equality? Because a lot of young people do genuinely believe that it's not an issue, that there's a presumption that we have that degree of equality and freedom and choice. Yeah, a lot of young women and young men think we have gender equality too. Um... And you'd say that that's not true either? No. No. I mean, if you look at it structurally and you look at things like the pay gap and the fact it's um, still women who give up their jobs to look after the children, without a lot of question as to whether that is what they would choose to do within Mm -hmm. any partnership they might be in or whatever, um, a lot of the old structures are still very much there. Mm -hmm. And the inequalities are part of that. But 
But isn't that a good thing that young people think that, in the sense that it shows that they're very positive towards it, even if they're not aware of the realities that it isn't quite that? I'll Whereas when we were starting, given that we're a couple of bitter old people, <laughs> you know, there was, everyone knew it wasn't there and nobody particularly wanted it for okay. us. OK. I um, set up some apprenticeships um, as part of the Arts Council Apprenticeship Scheme ooh, 15 years ago, and there was one young woman in particular who came in, disabled woman, um, and had a confidence that was just fresh and new and very much of her generation and... She assumed that that job was open to her and she took it and didn't look back and it was fantastic. Um, the reality was there was still an enormous amount of discrimination, mm. but I loved the way she came in with the expectation of equality. Mm. Um, the confidence attached to that will go a really long way. Um, Down the pan, by and large, when you hit the reality. But then there's the reality, <laughs> exactly. Isn't it a good thing, though, that young people now uh, presume inequality that makes it easier and, and they're more willing to support further drives for it rather than the struggle that we had where often it was presumed there wasn't equality, but equally there wasn't that much support for us to gain it either. There was still a resistance to see us as objects of charity. Um, I think it's great that young people seemingly have a greater confidence and presumption of equality. I don't think it's really there. I think things have shifted. When we were really young, the inequality was really blatant. Just if you tried to function within your environment, you couldn't. Now, to some extent, um, a lot of us can, but the inequalities have often gone a great deal deeper and have become more... Oh, subtle's the wrong word, really. But we're looking at kind of beginning of life, end of life stuff. Um, we're looking at whether um, babies with impairments are even allowed to be born. We're looking at um, the um, perhaps excessive help that is sometimes given to people with impairments who want to die without analysing why they want to die and whether they've actually got the provision they need, like personal assistance, so that they have the quality of life that they could have. Um, we're still seeing a lot of people locked away, locked away, living in institutions, in residential settings, rather than in their own homes, mm. um, which is a kind of... All, all of those groups are kind of out of sight, out of mind. So if you look at um, you know, middle-class white disabled people, opportunities have opened up to us that were not there 20 years ago. That's what I always it's say. way off being We're okay. all right. <laughs> yeah, there is a degree of the we're all right. Mm -hmm. and But there's still that sense that, so if you step out of line, you might not be all right anymore. So hang on to what you've got and don't look at everybody else who hasn't got yet. Mm. Mm. I, I'm, I'm interested in, and have your views changed over, over your experiences of, of impairment and disability about issues such as, like you said, about allowing disabled babies to live or euthanasia? Have your views changed about them over the years? Or have you, have you got pretty much the same views, but ameliorated with different nuances? Do you know, I think pretty much the same. Mm. One thing that's really struck me, um, and I wonder how I could have been so naive really now, but when um, I started out on all of this um, 
around 20, say, we might um, win certain equalities battles. And I kind of always assumed that we'd then move on to the next one and move on to the next one. And what I didn't realise is that um, half of our attention has to stay behind and protect the progress that we've made, which only leaves half of our attention to fight the next thing, and then only a fraction of that attention. And actually, we kind of run out of steam. Mm. Um, and un But unless we remain incredibly vigilant, <clears throat> we lose the progress we've made, and we also don't have the energy to fight the things that are still there that need fighting. Mm. I'm very intrigued by the, the use of the term we. <laughs> there. Uh, as and, and equally the term that, that uh, I and you and many of people we know talk about the movement. Mm. Uh, would you agree that the movement's in crisis? Yeah. And why? Um, somebody said, is the movement dead? And I don't think it is, but I think it's dormant. Um, and I think it's about those political changes, the, the broader political changes that have happened um, that in common with a lot of sort of social and political movements and the Thatcher years were actually in a bizarre way a gift because you could organise and hit against such... And invigorating. Um, they were really invigorating. And now we have a political party that historically is supposed to be on the side of the people. Um, and just it's all not gone, in reality. Not in reality and it's all just gone wishy-washy and there's nothing... You can't fight against wishy-washy. Mm. Um, and I think we've really suffered from that um, and lost our way. Mm. And unless we have some sort of regrouping and try and find strategies that work in the current political climate, so what do you then think I think we we're in do? trouble. Do you think we need an inspiring and uh, charismatic leader? And are you up for the role? I'm not up for the role. Um, actually, do you know what? I don't know that we... I don't know that figurehead thing is a way forward. I really don't. Um, I think, and I don't know how much of this is just my experience, but I think a lot of us as, as disabled people who have been political over a period of time have become incredibly isolated from each other. Mm. Um, some people have moved into mainstream jobs um, and are probably still being activists within those jobs just by being there and surviving, um, but don't have the available energy to put into the more direct campaigning mm -hmm. anymore. Some of us are just worn out and need time away from it. Um, and some of us have lost our way. But there is still that thing on those occasions when I come into a room that is filled with disabled people, I generally feel at home in a way that I don't think I do pretty much anywhere else. Mm. Mm. Um, and maybe what we need is just to start out is to have more and more opportunities like that where we actually spend time together again because that's how we started out. Mm. Mm. You know, the old uh, so consciousness raising So you're a groups. great believer in the kind of grassroots kind of uh, activism building up interested membership. Do you think young disabled people are different? To what we used to be because they don't often face especially if they are out in the community as opposed to banged up in some home that because they have a degree of equality that we didn't they're actually less interested in making waves or what what would you say i think it's much much easier to take risks if you're experiencing such extreme equality that actually there's not a lot of choice. Mm. If you're kind of in there or 
almost in there, then it can be a whole lot safer just to keep your head down and look after yourself and cope. Because the reality is, is the movement is in is is quite small, and even when it was at its most active and political, mm. it is in a kind of a relative numbers of the disabled community it is a very small. Yeah. Why do you think most disabled people, if not nearly all disabled people, reject the kind of movement and social activism to gain equality for themselves? I don't know how far people reject it and how far people haven't yet experienced it. So you think it's not so much that they would be against it, it's more that they don't know it exists? Or that what the version of it they've experienced doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly the disabled people I know who have become activists, and in every case they weren't born an activist, something mm -hmm. happened, mm -hmm. whether it was over a period of years or whether it was in an instant, something happened that communicated sense to them, mm -hmm. that they, they'd always felt on the outside and then somebody suddenly gave them an explanation for what they'd experienced that changed everything. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe those disabled people who are not involved in many instances just haven't had that moment of, of getting it. Mm. Mm. So would you argue then, or suggest, as I probably would, that the key group in need of disability equality training are in fact disabled people? Yeah, um, yes, I don't know whether it's called equality training or whether it's called something else, but yeah, I mean, it's the old... You know, in feminist movement, it was the whole mm. consciousness-raising mm. thing where groups of women came together and, and talked about their experiences. And from that, from those very basic talking about experiences, they made connections with each other and discovered there were patterns in those experiences mm. that couldn't just be explained on an individual basis. They started to be explained by social structures, mm. and that was the point where they realised that those social structures needed to be changed. Mm. So on that basis, I know this is a bit intellectual and it wasn't necessarily what you expected, but you're an intellectual, so let's go with it. Well, if you told me, I might just have thought about this before I'm prepared. <laughs> oh, no, no. We, we, like, we like on the spot. But, it, but I find it interesting because I, I always think that, because uh, I agree with you, uh, sexual equality is pretty much lacking as much as it, as it was. Uh, not as overt, as overt, but it's still much more covert and, mm. and dominant. Uh, and feminism, to some extent, failed because it, it left the arena of the grassroots and entered academia and became the preserve of the few. And to some extent, that's what's happened with race and then disability, that it leaves the people and enters academia and becomes much more meaningless to the real lives of disabled people to a degree that they can appreciate to actually make it affect their lives. Or am I talking rubbish? I wouldn't dare say you're talking rubbish. <laughs> uh, um, there, there seems to be a pattern about political movements that they go through waves, um, a wave of intense activism, and then um, a trough in that wave, and then at a certain point it regathers momentum. And it may well be that um, the current generation of young disabled people doesn't yet feel the need for activism and over time might realise what realise the basis of those inequalities and the need to organise.
Uh, Liz Crow, filmmaker and legendary disability artist uh, working in the media of film, installation, and the current project is called Resistance. Tell us what it is in essence. Resistance will be a film-based installation that will tour galleries and museums in the UK from this autumn, and it takes as its starting point the Nazi campaign of mass murder that targeted disabled people and looks at the way the values that underpinned that and permitted it to happen are still present today. And it starts to give a direction for what we might do about that to create change. Why are you doing it? Surely everybody knows about disability and the Holocaust. Do you know, virtually nobody knows about disability and the Holocaust. <laughs> I know that nobody knows about it. <laughs> Why do you think they don't know about it? I think um, a great deal of the focus has been on the vast Jewish Holocaust and a lot of the groups, the other groups that were targeted um, have been marginalised from the history. Mm -hmm. Do you call it the Holocaust in relation to disabled people? And I'll tell you why when you've given me your answer. mostly refer to it as Action T4 or the Nazi mm. campaign, but the whole thing of how we phrase it um, has been very complex in order to attract funding, museums, galleries mm. and so on, rather than put them off. I was told by the government I'm not allowed to use the term Holocaust in relation to disabled people and the Holocaust, because it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Jewish people and that I shouldn't even use it. I was giving a speech at the Holocaust Day Memorial event. Mm -hmm. It's called the Holocaust Day Memorial event. Yep. And I was not allowed to use the term the disability Holocaust at all, under any circumstances. Did they serve will. you with legal papers on that? It was, it, uh, we won't allow you to make the speech if you even indicate that you will say that. It's, um, it's, Which I uh, think is fascinating. It's highly political, far more so than I realised. Mm. Um, unpack that for us. In what way is it political? I think there is a strand of thinking that um, can become quite competitive about which group suffered most. Mm -hmm. And I guess... My line is that when you're the one that's about to go into that death chamber, mm. it's it's your life that's being lost. It's you, it's your family, it's you, it's the people around you, it's everything you're going to lose. And in that moment, that's what actually matters. Mm. And for every one of those millions of people who murdered, they weren't thinking, gosh, I belong to this group, I belong to that group. They were thinking, my life, mm. <laughs> you're taking my life. Mm. And actually in that moment, that's all that mattered. Uh, bizarrely, the other thing in when I did that speech <laughs> that I wasn't allowed to say, I was I had planned to mention the British influence on defining those theories and thoughts with the likes of Francis Galton, and I wasn't allowed to do that either. <laughs> because, because under no circumstances it could be linked to that that Britain had any any influence on the development of kind of eugenic ideas whatsoever, despite the fact that they do, by and large, come from Britain in the Victorian time and the mm -hmm. thinkers in there. <laughs> I was not allowed to say it at all. Which, in retrospect, is just really very funny because it is so half-baked drivel 
that it was just amazing. And I, I got a letter uh, signed on behalf of David Blunkett telling me I wasn't allowed to do that. Wow. Or, or use the term, oh, I don't know. I just threw it away because it was just, it was just amazing. Because I thought, I'm not allowed to say the disabled Holocaust, and I'm not allowed to say that, you know, the Nazis got a, the bulk of their ideas off of British thinkers. Mm. <laughs> and I just thought, what is the point of this? What is the point? So, have you made the films for the installation? The two films are already made. So we've got a 12-minute drama, historical drama. Um, about a group of disabled people within an institution who are about to be transported mm -hmm. to the death centres. And it's about one woman's resistance to that. That film's already made, as is a shorter conversation piece between three of the actors who took part in the drama. And what they do is look at their experience of making that film visiting two of the death centres in Germany and what, what all of that process has meant for them as disabled people today. So who are the three that have that discussion? Um, there is... <laughs> do this to Hang on. No, no, it's funny, because like, when people say to me uh, what my PhD was on, and I say six films, I can remember usually three or four, and I forget the other two, and yet I spent six years watching them. OK, the three actors in the conversations piece um, are Lou Burks, who plays Elise mm -hmm. in Resistance, mm -hmm. um, Jamie Bedard and Sophie Weaver. Mm -hmm. And we went to Germany for a few days, visited two of the death centres over there. Which, which two? Um, Hadamar and Bernberg. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, very thought-provoking and chilling experience very much informed the films and the larger installation. So those two films will form the core of, of this bigger installation, which will tour galleries and museums. Mm -hmm. um, and it will take the um, drama piece, the history, use the conversation piece to make the connections with present day. And then we'll use a series of whispering images, um, whisp sorry, whispering voices and portraits to um, look at the experience of disabled people now and how we need to change things in the future. Mm. I, th I think one of the key things for me is um, I wanted to commemorate what is very much a hidden history I wanted to bring that hidden history to a wider audience and also commemorate the people who were caught up in it. Um, but I wanted to go further than that and look at what we do with the fact of that history. Mm. It, it, there is this thing that it happened and it was, it was almost imag unimaginably horrific. Mm. But once we acknowledge that, what do we do with it? Unless we can learn from that and do things differently, begin to do things differently, then, then I don't know where the benefit is in going over and over the history. So it felt very, very important to me to look at the history and then bring it into the present. And how do you do that? How um, have you brought it into the present? Through the conversations piece, mm -hmm. in which the actors make connections between the experience of the disabled people in the historical drama and their own experiences now. And what they do is reveal that whilst Action T4, that, that Nazi programme, was a very specific historical event, the values that permitted it to happen are still contemporary and influencing our lives. So those notions of disabled people as being of less value, um, of disposable, 
of being disposable, the idea of mercy killing, all of those things were used as justifications for Action T4. They're still used as justifications now, whether it's um, in relation to aborting impairments with um, fetuses with impairments or whether it's um, putting children in segregated schooling or running institutions um, or euthanasia, often mercy killing is used in relation to that. Mm. Those values that, that say we are worth less mm. still exist. Mm. And do you think disabled people want this? Want the installation? And this kind of history being brought back up? When I've spoken to disabled people and at um, Holocaust-related events, there is very definitely an audience for this. Disabled and non-disabled people in those audiences seem to be very keen that this history is brought to light mm -hmm. um, and is acknowledged, mm. um, but are also excited by the idea of bringing it into current times and what what do we do what practical things mm. can we do with that mm. so part of the installation will be collecting testimony from contemporary disabled people about how those values impact on their lives now what they think needs to change and that very practical element um, has a very keen audience and so I like the term the continuing holocaust against disabled people given uh, disabled people's position in contemporary western society which is precarious at best and non-existent at, uh, at worst so in in trying to make it relevant to today how different is today to to then action t4 what's the difference do you think it's interesting if you look at the years before action t4 um it happened in Germany, which in the, the interwar years was a leader, um, a world leader in rehabilitation, um, particularly getting war wounded um, back into society, back into employment. Um, it had an incredibly strong reputation for that. Mm. Despite that appearance of integration, <laughs> um, along comes Hitler, um, who capitalises on a movement, a eugenics movement that is taking place in a number of key countries in the world. So with resistance, uh, who's funding it? Um, well, we have just been told we've got a sizeable Arts Council grant, which is fantastic news. I always ask my guests, how much? 41,000. That's pretty good. Which is wonderful. Um, to release that money, we need to get the rest of the money in place and we need to get um, our full touring schedule in place. And how many places do you need for a full touring schedule? We're looking for six for the UK tour. Six. So we're in negotiation with a number of places, um, but we are looking for people to come forward um, and suggest their venues. And would they have to pay anything? Yes, they how would. How much? Um, our standard rate is £3,000 and um, the rate for disabled people's organisations is £2,000. We've kept that as low as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to continue raising money ourselves to see if we can take it any lower than that. And so have you got any other sponsors? Um, we have had some funding from Unlimited and also from Awards for All and um, the films were made 
with um, part of a fellowship that I received from NESTA, mm -hmm. which is National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts. So a number of different funding sources, but we are looking for a remaining pot of money. So one of the things we now need to do is to look at things like corporate sponsorship. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And how can others support you? Um, one of the things we're finding is that the venues that are most interested have often been approached by an intermediary, a disability arts organisation or um, disabled people's organisation that has a particular interest in seeing this installation in their area. Mm -hmm. We're looking for a whole range of venues from formal art galleries and museums through to disused hospital wards, um, former institutions, old warehouses. Um, so if people have places they can suggest, and particularly if they have contacts um, with people who run those venues, we'd very much like to hear from them. And when it's on, how long would it ideally be on for? Um, three, six weeks per venue. And could people have it for cheaper, for shorter? Probably not, because the costs of um, setting it up are the same each time. Basically, what we need to do, we have a tech team who reprogram the, compu the computer mm -hmm. for the installation for each new venue space. Right, right. And, and it, does it have a website? Um, yes, if you go to www.roaring-girl.com, that's Roaring Girl Productions' website with all of our various film and other media projects, and look out for resistance on that. We also have a resistance Facebook page, um, so if you're on Facebook, you can search on Roaring Girl Productions-resistance, um, and there's lots of information updates on there. Mm -hmm. and, and have you got it confirmed so that someone can see it soon? Anyway. Um, we are touring from the autumn in the UK. Mm -hmm. We've also had some interest from Germany and from the United States, so we're hoping to take it overseas at a slightly later date. Um, and what exhibition is there? At, you know, you went to the German places that were the death hospitals mm. for disabled. Do they have exhibitions there about about the Holocaust and disabled people? Um, yeah, those death centres have now become memorial centres. Mm -hmm. So the um, chambers in the basement have been left intact. And on the ground floor in both places, they have got um, archival photographs and documents to go and see. Do they um, have exhibition spaces for potentially for this? Um, yes, we're, we're talking to both of those places at the moment about the possibility of taking it over there. Mm. Um, Hadamar actually has um, the only surviving um, garage from Action T4 where the buses drove in um, with disabled people and, and decamped from there. Mm. Um, and that would be a really very interesting venue if we could site it in mm. there. Mm -hmm. uh, just have, when you were there, were there lots of people there or are they very rarely visited these places? Apparently Hadamar has 10,000 visitors a year. Does it? Um, there were not lots of people when we were going around. There was a school trip at mm. one of the places um, and it's one of those things where there's teenagers out on the school trip and there's all that kind of suppressed energy that bursts out in giggles and laughter and all that sort of thing, which was kind of quite a mismatch with yes, the venue. Yes, I know. When I went to Dachau and the school trip's going round and they're just having a fun day out. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh. But it was also quite oh. interesting that these... these 
kids and young people had just been round this place um, and we were a small group of disabled people and nobody could quite meet our eyes. <laughs> oh, how things never change. So uh, what's next for you? Or do you plan for this to take uh, a considerable period of your future up? It's going to take up a fair while, probably, uh, I'd guess, a year or two with the UK and the international tour. Mm. Um, each venue that we tour at will have a series of linked events, um, which will range from workshops, lectures, performances, musical performance, dance performance... Um, all sorts of different events that link thematically to the installation. Mm -hmm. um, so at various points I will be visiting those different tour spaces. Mm -hmm. So it will go on for quite a while. And so you expect that to be, what, two to four years, really? I'm thinking more like a couple of years. <laughs> two years. <laughs> <laughs> These things have a way of um, taking longer than you ever expect. It'll take much longer than that. <laughs> but have you got anything on the back burner that you're thinking about bringing forward? I have. I have two projects. One is to sleep, mm. and then when I've slept for quite a long time, I have a feature film in mm. development, um, which, uh, in, in contrast, this is a comedy drama <laughs> um, and might well be needed by then. <laughs> um, but again, it's another. It's a huge pot of money I need, um, so I am on the lookout for finance. As indeed we all are. <laughs> You said that uh, you, that the school children you came across on the visit, you know, found it very difficult to make eye contact. How differently do you think non-disabled people view disabled people today in relation to the, how they did when they when they were killing us in the gas chambers of Hadamar? I think there's a real politeness in the way a lot of non-disabled people view us today. Um, there's a lot that is unspoken um, but is quite easy to trigger. So I've heard some critics say that uh, the primary difference between Nazi Germany's uh, kind of attempt to eradicate disabled people through kind of active euthanasia policy and practices is today is, is that we just give people the choice to do it now. And they will almost always choose to do exactly the same as was done then. I watched a programme 10, 15 years ago about um, euthanasia legislation in Holland. And the documentary was designed to show us here in the UK about how safe it was as legislation. That if somebody um, declared a wish to have their life ended, there were three doctors who had to make three separate examinations and sign off that this person was of sound mind and making a, um, a decision free of any kind of external pressure and so on. And on the documentary, we watched somebody going through this process. And one of the things the man said in interview with one of the doctors was, I no longer want to be a burden to my wife. They signed him off on all the different things and we watched him be injected and die and nobody said, why do you think you're a burden to your wife? Why are you a burden to your wife? They didn't live in fully accessible accommodation. They didn't have personal assistance. His wife, they were both quite elderly, his wife was providing um, all his personal assistance needs. 
you know, in that context, mm. there was a huge burden there and nobody actually stepped in to look at what could be done there. Now, had they sorted all of that, the man still might have made the right decision. Mm. But he was not able to make a truly informed choice at that point. Mm. So do you think euthanasia should be allowed in terminal illness and not disability? Or both? Or not at all? There are three. The installation isn't going to take a position on that. Mm -hmm. um, my personal opinion is that right now in society, we cannot pass safe legislation, mm -hmm. um, which is not the same as saying I am pro-euthanasia or against euthanasia. I just don't think we can do it safely. And I, I, I don't think we can even... Um, contemplate bringing in legislation that will protect people until we have begun to acknowledge the fact that disabled people do not even have the most basic resources they need mm. in a lot of instances. Mm. You know, if Let's take somebody who has an accident, has an impairment, there is a moment where they cease to be somebody without an impairment, they become somebody who has an impairment. Um, all of that gets mixed up with a set of circumstances where maybe um, their partner le leaves them, they lose their home, they lose their job, maybe their child is taken away from them, maybe they're put in an institution. Their life as they knew it has suddenly crumbled to nothing. Mm. But where, who asks the questions about whether that has come from impairment or whether that has come from social structure? We're back mm. to that social model. Mm that until you have actually looked at, examined all of those social structures and removed all the unnecessary obstacles that that person is experiencing, the socially imposed obstacles, then nobody is in a position to make a decision about quality of life. But then the way you're speaking is implies that you feel that we can get to a safe point where it would be possible... I don't know whether we can. But are you an optimist or, or a pessimist? Do you think that, that it's within people to achieve that, that safetyness, which is basically a belief that uh, achieving equality? I don't know. You don't know? I know we've got such a long way to go, so ask me in another 25 years. Do you... Well, let me, let me rephrase it. Did, have you achieved what you wanted to achieve 20 years ago? Has it changed no. that significantly that would make you think that the tw next 20 years could progress significantly? To look at it this way, I think disabled people now have a, a degree of equality that was unimaginable 20 years ago. But equally, we have a degree of extermination that was unimaginable 20 years ago. And that, to some extent, both of them will increase... And that's the dichotomy, that we do have an incredible equality for those of us that are alive and able to engage with society. But if you're talking about with the additional waves of uh, genetic screening, the number of conditions that are being screened, mm -hmm. uh, the consequences of that, the different groups that will no longer exist, my impairment, spina bifida, Down syndrome, the termination rates are well in the 90%. So you do have a, a society that lives with a massive contradiction in its daily workings that is both psychotically exterminating certain groups, 
mm-hmm. whilst giving equality to a degree that is unimaginable. 24-hour support for people to live in the community independently, that's a massive dichotomy. And those examples of equality are very visible. Mm. So they're very reassuring to people looking on. And those examples of inequality and extermination are very hidden. Mm. So people on the outside don't realise they're going on. And that's why resistance is so important. Yeah. To to both highlight the contradictions of, of the contemporary society and its historical legacy. I've had a lot of people say to me through this, what what has that history got to do with now? You can't tell me that Action T4 is going on now. It's like that was a discrete historical event, very particular set of circumstances. But if you look at the values that permitted it to happen, they are still contemporary and they are still having a very profound effect on our lives, even to the point of, that you've just described of preventing some of us from existing. It's mm. absolutely relevant now. Mm. And the longer I've worked on this project, the more that relevance has been... It's just utterly compelling. Has it depressed you? Um, I knew the only way that I could approach this topic was to focus on two aspects. One was the resistance of disabled people even caught up within the history, um, that disabled people did say no and did protest. Um, And the other thing that I wanted to focus on very much was what it meant for us now. Because I can't do anything to change the history, I'd have found it very difficult simply to focus on that. Mm. But we can do things to change now. Are you religious? I'm not. Not in any organised religious sense. Right. Not that that's a problem. I'm just intrigued because often the kind of people who are very supportive of this do come from a kind of very uh, defined moral religious background that that gives them the confidence to explore these issues, which I think a lot of non-disabled people who don't have that are frightened to death of exploring issues that they think are controversial. I mean, the issues are terrifying. Mm. Um, When I went to um, Bernberg, I talked to the woman who runs it as a memorial, who's been there for 12 years, and, and just said to her, how do you cope? How do you come to this place? Day in, day day out out. for 12 years. And she said, well, I have a very good team and we laugh a lot. Mm. If somebody's under a lot of pressure, we send them home for a few days and then they come back and we laugh some more. And, And I suppose that's what we as a team have tried to do through this project, is actually to try and laugh. Is there a record of resistance? Um, if you read a book by Hugh Gregory Gallagher called By Trust Betrayed, um, he did a great detail of in-depth research of the, on the Action T4 programme and he found instances of resistance. Um, a lot of that resistance wasn't on a grand scale in the way that we think of direct action today because people couldn't do that. But if you imagine yourself, if you can, in a situation where your life is completely and utterly on the line... Some people have said to me, so why why not resist? There's nothing to lose. But obviously people can make your last experience even worse than it already is. Mm. So there is a great danger, there are great risks attached to resisting. For me, resistance included people who said no when they were being loaded onto the 
the bus. It included people who tried to run away. It included people who escaped. It included the people in the town of Apsburg who came out of the local institution the night before they knew they were being transported to the death centre. And they went and knocked on the door of every person in that town to say goodbye. And from that, they were all taken away on the death bus the next day. They didn't survive, but in doing that, they started to get the word out to other citizens in Germany. And from the people in Apsburg, um, the Bishop of Munster made a really significant um, speech that was instrumental in bringing the formal part of Action T4 to a close. What are the numbers? Oh, uh, the numbers, the numbers. Because there's a bit um, of a debate about the numbers, isn't there? There's a big debate about the numbers, and there's also something very competitive about the numbers between mm. different groups. Because um, some say 70,000 and some say 250,000. It's usually yeah. between those two numbers, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and there's um, and some people say 400,000. Um, the records are so inadequate that we will never know the numbers. Um, and the killing was often done in a very informal way so we will never know the numbers there was the formal phase of action t4 where the actual death centers were set up and then when the final solution to kill jewish people came into um, practice the ovens were removed from those death centers and taken to the concentration camps at that point the wild euthanasia program began um, and that's where the large number of people were killed. But that was kind of one-on-one medical yep. staff on disabled people. We'll never know the numbers. I do think the numbers are probably a great deal higher than research suggests, because if you look at photographs from concentration camps where there were predominantly Jewish people recorded as, as being captive, there are photographs of um, piles of artificial limbs, for example. So there were disabled people within those concentration camps who were not there, who were not recorded as disabled people. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the first people to have been killed in those places, it was the people who um, were considered more of a burden because they couldn't um, keep up with the work detail. Mm -hmm. So very often it was children, it was elderly people, it was people who were ill, it was people who had impairments. Mm -hmm. Have you seen The Hunger House? I have. And what did you think? I think it's really interesting. Um, I was talking to Justin Edgar just the other day. I must and explain, it's a short film by Justin Edgar that's set in about a people, group of disabled people being taken to a death centre on a bus. Yeah. And then they get off the bus and are led in. I really like the way um, we've, we've produced films that... Oh, three months apart. I think his came out three months before mine. Um, and I'd like to think they're not in competition. I don't think they are. I think as filmic pieces, they're really interestingly different. Mine is a, about resistance. That is the theme of, of my film. His is about friendship. Mm -hmm. They both happen to take place in that same historical period. They're actually quite different films. Um, I think his is very beautiful, cinematically beautiful film. Um, he has had a very mixed response from festivals. Um, why, why do you think there's an interest in the Holocaust and disabled people from disabled people at the moment? Because there does seem to be a bit of a, a bit of a groundswell 
because there was also a little small memorial in somewhere in Nottingham recently. Hmm. Is that right? And you went to that? That's right. I gave a talk about the history of that. Um, I think there. Is, well, I think first of all there is um, a groundswell of interest amongst disabled people. I think it's still proving quite difficult to place this work in the mainstream. I think there is a very strong sense from a lot of venues that the Holocaust has been done already, as in they might have exhibits about the Jewish Holocaust mm. um, and therefore they feel that historical episode has been covered mm. and there is quite a degree of resistance to looking at other groups. Mm. There's a concern that it may be just too depressing or unsuitable for family groups. Um, and I think Justin's film has stumbled across all of those sort of blocks. Mm. Um, and what, what, what kind of... Apart from the two death camps themselves that you've been to, are there others in Germany that are museums for this? Um, there were six death centres mm -hmm. in Germany and Austria, mm -hmm. um, all of which are memorials. All of them are memorials. Uh, do you think there should be a large-scale memorial to disabled people who died in the Holocaust here? Like there are to other groups? It would be a start to see um, a large-scale memorial to disabled people who died in the Holocaust mm. there mm. first. Mm. Um, we were very struck when we visited Berlin. Um, we went, first of all, to see the Action T4 memorial, which is um, on the site where the bureaucratic headquarters were. Um, it's a very beautifully written bronze slab set into the pavement um, and oh, ironically given that people were transported away in grey buses it's actually on the site of a bus terminus um, we went to this um, <laughs> memorial and see you could make of, us laugh ah, there you go. <laughs> there were half a dozen of us kind of sitting around thinking well now we're here what do we do because it felt we didn't really know what to do with it and then we went down the road and we went to the Jewish memorial, mm. which is incredibly moving, vast blocks. Um, have you ever seen it? It's the one by Rachel Whitehurst, is that the one? No, it's not. There's um, another one. I'm not sure who it's by, actually, I'm afraid. Um, it, there are almost pedestrian streets between these large... Concrete um, slabs. ...concrete slabs that are like tombs mm. of different heights mm. and different scales. Mm. Um, it's absolutely beautiful and compelling and meditative and incredible. And if you compare the scale of that to the one for Action T4, it's wholly disproportionate. And so did that anger you? I think it just felt painful. Mm, mm. What was the reaction to you all sitting around the slab? in the bus station from the Germans? Um, one person... Actually, it wasn't until I looked at the photographs afterwards that, that I realised um, one or two people stopped and looked at the slab. Um, the first thing we did was drive up and sit in the bus from the opposite side of the road, mm. and all people did was kind of... It, I mean, it's not, it's not a major thoroughfare, mm -hmm. um, but mostly people kind of walked past it, cycled past it, walked over it, cycled over it, um, and people didn't stop. Now, maybe that's their route every day and they've stopped a 100 mm. times before and looked at it, mm. but it didn't cause people to stop in the way that that other memorial Forces was you absolutely... Awesome. Right. 
Uh, well, I think we've probably got enough there. Anything else you want to say? Make any grand statements of life, liberty and the pursuit of freedom? No. As we enter the dark tunnel <laughs> that is contemporary Britain. Let's call it a day and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for 